So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. And they answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna when they journeyed through the wilderness. And the scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Thank you very much, Ellie. Great job reading. Uh, a couple nerd notes before we jump into this. Uh, first is the crowd that we're looking at here, they missed a big miracle that was referenced last week. So Jenny Matheny did a great job last week. Didn't she do a great job? Yeah, she was awesome. Uh, knew she would be. And uh, so there was a different group of people that experienced this incredible miracle, what we call um, you know, the miracle of the loaves and fishes or the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. There's lots of theological uh, dialogue about what exactly happened there. Won't go into that today. But after that, Jesus crosses the lake. This is a different group of people who weren't there uh, for that miracle. So that's why they're asking him from a sign. If you don't pick up on that, you're like, wait a minute, you already saw this sign. Well, not this group. Uh, they may have heard something, but they haven't seen it yet. And a couple other nerd notes just to point out. Uh, just note that uh, Jesus chooses to call himself Son of Man. That is his preferred title. He doesn't like Son of God. And the reason he prefers Son of Man is Son of Man is a reference to like every man. You know, like I'm everybody. That's sort of what Jesus was trying to say. And even in those moments where you see Son of God, it's not meant to be like Thor, you know, where <laughs> half God, half man. But it's, it's looked at as a symbol of God's anointed one. Uh, even in the Old Testament, you see Son of God uh, put on different, mainly kings uh, back in, back in uh, antiquity. Uh, a couple other things I want you to uh, notice here. Um, this is another thing that has to do with how, God's, or how Jesus sees himself. Uh, he, they ask for a sign like Moses. They say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus' first response is, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. So he's pointing it to God. This is Jesus's MO. So he's never owning stuff just on himself. He's always pointing the finger uh, up to God and giving God the credit. And even when he talks about, I am the bread of life, you're just remember, you're talking to a Jewish audience here. So anytime a line starts off with, I am the bread of life, 
they're immediately going to go back to the Moses story where when Moses asked, well, who do I say is sending me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. So even here, Jesus is not as much referring to himself, the fleshly Jesus, as the great I am who is working through him. Does that make sense? All right, enough nerdiness on that level. I find this a, a very interesting story. And actually, I think has quite a bit of relevance uh, for us today. And I'm wondering what relevance you see. Is here we have a group of people in the first century uh, in a time when there were lots of people claiming to be the Messiah, uh, trying to rally people uh, to overthrow Rome, mostly zealots who wanted to take up arms and uh, take care of business, try to challenge Caesar. Uh, and so they're asking for a sign. And I just would invite your, your feedback. Why do they want to see a sign that Jesus is the anointed one? What do you, what do you think's going on here? And they end up going for bread, but what do you think's going on here? Why, why do they want a sign? Any thoughts? Be convinced of what? Okay. To validate that Jesus was who he says he was and that God was clearly working through him. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, he was known from uh, external sources as a magician, uh, which is antiquity's way of saying he had healing powers and could do some pretty cool stuff that apparently can only come from God. And those acts, like with Elijah and Elisha, uh, many centuries before, those validated the person. So certainly that's, that's one thing that's there. What else? What? Unpack that. What do you mean, Stephen? Okay, so it gives them confidence. So variation on the previous. So now he's been authenticated. Now they can take the risk uh, going forward and perhaps eating manna from heaven or a nice quail feast uh, will, <laughs> will give them confidence to go forward. Okay, yeah, Curtis. Okay, very good. And John's gospel in particular uh, works with this a ton. Signs is a big word in the gospel of John uh, because it's hearkening back uh, to those things, which you're going to know that God is with you because of the signs that are all, all around. So good point. Good, good biblical stuff. Yeah, Anne. Great question. And I would uh, actually, I can't speak into every one of them because there were too many and they mostly died uh, unknown, uh, but <laughs> which sort of makes you wonder if they were legit or not. But there were other miracle workers at his time, uh, in Jesus' time. Uh, one guy was named uh, Ben Honey, the circle maker. And he was famous for, uh, he's called the circle maker because the way he would pray is kind of a mantra, walking around in circles, so praying this prayer. And uh, in one occasion, he brought rain in a time of drought. And another occasion, uh, he, uh, I think he was instrumental in healing a sick girl or something like that. And so there's some history uh, with that. So some would have looked at them, but I don't think Honey uh, ever claimed to be the Messiah, ever claimed to be the one. Okay. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Keith.
Okay, you just teed me up for a wonderful segue. So nicely done. <laughs> you weren't even planted uh, for that. You know, all the things that you said are, are right. Uh, you're, you're dead on uh, with everything you said. And I'm wondering, though, for us, as we come into this from our time in history, I wonder how we might view it for ourselves. And some of the things, certainly, that they shared in the first century, we would share as well. Uh, we want to know that this thing's legit. Why are we going to risk our lives, our reputations, our, our hope on something that's false? So we're all from Missouri, right, uh, in that respect. And so we want to, you know, show me state kind of thing. So we get that. I was technically born in Missouri. So, you know, I, I resonate with that deeply. Um, but, you know, there's some other things going on here that are, that are interesting that I wonder if they speak to human nature all the time and maybe in a pronounced way in our time. So they're wanting something. And the specific thing they're wanting is a Moses-type miracle, just like the one that he just did. Uh, they're, they're wanting this benefit, this free lunch, if you will. <laughs> they want the manna from heaven, which is going to be a cool thing to see, but it's also going to fill their bellies. It's also interesting because they bring up Moses, and I wonder, I wonder what that implies, that they would bring up an example for Jesus to then reach. And I wonder if we do that sometimes. If we say, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've heard that some people sometimes pray prayers to God, like, well, I'll believe in you if you can, and then fill in the blank. Uh, I'll, I'll believe in you more if you heal my, my sick friend. Or I'm sure I'll go to church more if you help me land the job. And all sorts of things that we sort of throw out there to say, I'll believe in you, God, if you can just show me a sign that it's legitimate. Have you ever done that or heard of anybody ever doing anything like that? Even seeking people uh, who are wondering, you know, if this whole God thing is legit. I think they pray prayers like that too. Well, I'll believe it if, if you can prove yourself uh, to me. And there's a very natural part to that. We have brains, we're supposed to use them, right? We have intuition, we're supposed to use that. Uh, we have hands and feet to try stuff out and uh, see if it actually is legit. I remember uh, <laughs> uh, in my first two months in Napa, I bought this, uh, this contraption. Uh, we were out at a Walmart and they had this special display and it was the Quick Cut 2000. The Quick Cut 2000. The Quick Cut 2000 was Y2K compliant because it had no electronics whatsoever. It was basically a salsa maker. And you, <laughs> you throw all the stuff you want to become your pico de gallo and you hit the handle thing and it goes. And we, we used it once <laughs> and then it broke. And that was kind of the end of that. So there's, you know, I would never tell anybody to buy the Quick Cut 2000 <laughs> because of my experience uh, with the Quick Cut 2000. Certainly we do this with faith in different ways, but there's some hazards here we need to be aware of. It's totally appropriate for you to use our brains to think things through. And yet we kind of have this controlling tendency as human beings. And that controlling tendency, and that's kind of what we see here, is the people saying, well, we'll believe, with you. we'll believe in you if you do this. 
And I wonder if he did it right then and there, I wonder what the next wish would be. Well, I'll believe in you if you'll do this next thing. So you gave us this one. That was pretty good. Everybody likes a good manna and quail meal, but what can you do with pork ribs, Jesus? You know, <laughs> that would be a miracle for a Jewish man, right? So I just wonder what the tendency might be here. And I, I wonder sort of by extension, as we think this thing through a little bit about our motive for faith in the first place, why do we even have faith? Why do we even pursue it? And how does that mess with our agenda and our faith relationship altogether? In the early 1800s in America, um, the beginnings of a very pronounced, loud uh, flavor of Christianity began to emerge. We know it as evangelicalism. It barely started in the early 1800s, started to show some significant voices in the middle 1800s, and by the late 1800s, it was codified in a conference in Niagara Falls, which became a fundamentalist Christianity. Now, part of that um, understanding includes a lot of the things I was referencing earlier about how we're all sinners, we're doomed. If we don't do anything about it, we're going to die. And when we die, we're going to burn in hell and nobody's going to like that. So you better figure out what to do. And lo and behold, there's good news. Jesus is the answer to that. And actually the way the four spiritual lives go is uh, we're all sinners. We're destined to die. Uh, the wages of sin is death. There's nothing we can do about it. If we, if we don't do anything about it, we're goners. But just at the right time, Christ died for our sins and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that, that sort of summed up Christianity for millions upon millions of people. Like that was pretty much it which sort of explains, even though it definitely preceded us, sort of explains the Apostles' Creed. Uh, basically, you got a guy who lived, died for a purpose, and raised again a new life. We don't really need to know much more than that. There was a guy named Charles Finney who uh, literally uh, fought his way to preach to cowboys in the Wild West because that's what you did uh, back then. And if you won the, the, the boxing match or whatever in certain places anyhow, uh, you got the right to speak. And so he's the first one that we know of that popularized in wide fashion the idea of turn or burn preaching. Either turn from your sinful ways or burn in hell. In the 1800s. So that's not, that's not uh, really old. This doesn't go back many centuries. This, this goes back to like when our church was founded <laughs> in 1860. That's when it started to be popularized. And you know what? It was effective because cowboys out in the Wild West just might die that day because it was a hard life. And so it, it got some traction. And because it got converts, because people were afraid of what would happen after they died, uh, more and more people started using it. And it became more and more popular. In the late 1800s, however, uh, and the seminaries on the East Coast, uh, they were recognizing, particularly in large urban areas like New York City, uh, that our Christian nation was allowing some horrible, horrible things to happen right under our nose, particularly in New York City in a, a place called Hell's Kitchen, where labor laws really didn't exist and people were treated terribly because, of their, because they were immigrants in this case, Italian immigrants, which is fascinating. 
children were being worked to the bone. It was a horrible situation. And theologians started to speak into this, hoping that pastors would catch on. One guy in particular who uh, is sort of from our tribe was named Walter Rauschenbusch. And he started to talk about the social gospel, but for him, it was really just gospel. It was like, what are we doing as the people of God, as Jesus followers, to actually make a difference in the world? He started to talk about the life of Jesus and the broader thing that Jesus called us uh, to do and to be. This is in, you know, right at the turn of the, of the century, 1900s. And then somewhere around 1920 and forward, there, were, there, were, uh, there was a marriage that was made between a, a more classic, a more evangelical expression of Christianity, which really focused on afterlife and not social issues that got in bed with politics. And for a very long time, this idea of what we do in the world as followers of Jesus was greatly subdued. And that other message of Christianity is really just about life after death came on in great force. Billy Sunday uh, was a great evangelist in the United States, followed by Billy Graham, another great evangelist. And all the way through up until now, the evangelist's primary message is we're all sinners. Wages of sin is death. You're going to be toast if you don't do something at just the right time. Jesus died for your sins 2,000 years ago so that all who call the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the primary message. And I wonder, I wonder, even though there are certain truths that are communicated in this about God's grace, I wonder when we become so fixated on afterlife, if we miss this life and what Jesus had to say about here and now. And I wonder if because we get this nicely wrapped four spiritual laws package in the Roman road, I wonder if, if actually that becomes a part of our kind of sick consumerism that bleeds over into our faith itself. I wonder if maybe in our time, in our space, in a Western culture, and particularly the United States, I wonder if it's possible that maybe because of all this wrapped together and all the influences that have come upon us, I wonder if sometimes faith can be relegated to something as benign as what kind of laundry detergent you use? Or, you know, what's your favorite radio station? Or did I pay my insurance bill? Like, did I believe in Jesus? Check the box. And we're all good. And I have to believe that it has to be more than that. And actually, we see evidence of it here, kind of in a sneaky way, right here in the text we're looking at. Now, <laughs> some of you, may have paid attention to this text as Ellie was reading. And right now, you might want to raise your hand and say, Pete, <laughs> you're going against the scripture here. Because when they asked, what do they need to do? Jesus told them, the, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. All you got to do is believe. Bam. Time to drop the mic, Pete, and go home. You, you missed this one. I don't know if I did. When we read the word believe in our culture, in our time, this English word believe, we are naturally prone to think intellectual assent. That I've thought this thing through and I've come to the conclusion that Jesus was who he said he was, so I'm believing that Jesus was the person he said he was. And so I'm saying that with my mouth 
that I think Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, case closed. And we call that belief. Unfortunately, or fortunately, the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was this translation anyway. All of the New Testament was written in Greek. And so when we think about what the Greek word is here for believe, that requires us to think differently because the first audience who read this would read that word in a very different way. If you've been around here a while, this is not the first time you've heard this. But in Greek, belief means actually three different things joined together. The first thing you're very familiar with, which is intellectual assent. God gave us brains, so let's study this thing through. Does this make any sense at all? Uh, do we see things that give us an idea that Jesus was anointed by God? Yep, okay, so we see that intellectually. A lot of things match up. That all makes sense. But that's not it. The second piece of this has to do with your passion has to do with your gut. What do you care about in the world? What do you care about about life? This is something that your fire in your belly. You know, there are Giants fans and there are Giants fans. There are Giants fans who may have some paraphernalia from 20 years of watching the Giants, but they really don't know the Giants and they really don't care all that much. But they'll tell you that they're Giants fans. And then you have my wife, <laughs> who is a Giants fan, right? who can tell you everything about all the players and the terrible decisions that they've made in recent years and some of the great decisions that they've made. That's a fan. There is a fan that says they're a fan, but they really don't even know if a game's being played and they don't really care if they win or lose. It's like, eh, nah, whatever. And then there are the fans who their life worth ebbs and flows with <laughs> the win and loss column with the San Francisco Giants, which this year, it's a, it's a good life, right? So far, fingers crossed. I think that's true here for faith, that what God is looking for, what Jesus is talking about, isn't just this intellectual, oh, well, I've come to this philosophical conclusion, this must certainly be, but it's actually a fire in your belly kind of a thing. This matters to you. I mean, it deeply ma not matters like you know, they're going to run out of your favorite cereal at, at the grocery store, and it's going to be this terrible inconvenience. But I mean, it, it's like the core thing of your being. You can't not pay attention to this. That's the second element that has to do with passion. So Jesus is saying, yeah, use your brain, but this thing is meant to drive your life, to drive your thinking, to drive your heart, to break your heart in certain times. And then the third thing has to do with what you're actually going to do with it. Your hands and feet. Is this thing that you believe in, is this thing you're so passionate about, is it translating into how you live your life? What you do with your being? That's what belief means. That changes everything. Because now it's no longer just, you know, Johnny six-year-old at vacation Bible school saying yes to Jesus, and now he knows he's going to go to heaven someday. Now, that may be true, but that's not Christianity. That's not what this thing is all about, which is why Jesus then plays with the idea of Moses and manna and quell, uh, corrects them. This is God's work, not Moses' work, and then says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty.
what is he talking about? He's talking about this way of life, this walk with God. That's what does the saving, not magic words that we repeat. It's when we actually live the way of Jesus, when we actually walking with the Spirit, that's when it actually does something in us that we know it is that, that almost sometimes overrides our intellectual capacity because we can't help but see it. It goes from God being this intellectual idea out there on a table somewhere or way up there in heaven to a very real experience everywhere. This reality of what Jesus is talking about, this way of life, that's the bread of life. That's the cup that will never have us thirsting again. Paul talks about this, by the way, on uh, the lower half here. I didn't have Ellie read this because I was going to come at it later. Listen to what Paul says. And by the way, he's, you're going to see he's in prison. He's in Rome. He's waiting to die. And he ends up dying. And he wrote uh, the Ephesian church and the, the church in Colossae uh, the, the same time. And they had similar themes. And this is what he says to the Ephesian church. In light of all this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. You are all created to travel on the same road and in the same direction, so stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. It's the way of Jesus not just the verbal acceptance of Jesus that makes the difference. And so I bring it right back. Why in the world are you doing this faith thing? What got you started? I know some of your stories, and I know for some of you, the reason you got to faith in the first place was because of fear, primarily fear. You didn't want to burn in hell, and you were told that if you didn't say the words, you would. And I just hope today you'll see there is something so much more beautiful than that, so much more compelling that actually will make the world a better place and not just give a minority of the people in the world the uh, false authority to condemn everyone else in the world. This is a way that is inclusive and loving and bridging that invites people across the aisle, different ways of thinking, because we recognize that God is bigger than we can possibly hope or imagine, bigger than our imaginations. Yesterday, uh, we had a large um, celebration of life for a young woman named Megan Lyle, who was the preschool director here uh, that meets here on our campus. She was just 34 years old. Uh, she and her family um, would describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. And the reason why they would is because um, 
even though they grew up and spent a good number of years uh, in a classic Christian church uh, here in Napa, they faced horrible tragedy on multiple occasions in their family history. And the answers that the faith gave them just simply didn't uh, satisfy. It didn't add up. It didn't make any sense. Thoughts about, well, God is in control, so you know, you just got to trust God that this horrible, horrible thing happened because that must be the only way we can get there or it's just a mystery or someday you'll understand or there must be a lesson in somewhere. All kinds of things that we say out of that perspective that actually hurts and don't help. But when I talked about Megan and her faith, I had good things to say. She read widely different spiritual traditions. But you know why I was uh, confident to talk about her faith? It's because of her passion and what she did with her hands and feet. It wasn't about meeting some criteria or test to make sure that the clipboard can be checked, you know, at the pearly gates. I know that she walked in the spirit because of two things. The first thing, her passion, which was children, uh, wanting to improve the lives of children. Deep in her bones, she wanted uh, y the youngest among us to be well. She even got, uh, got her bachelor's uh, in early childhood development, uh, went on to get certification so that she could be in hospital settings, helping uh, connect doctors who had to deliver terrible news to families and helping those families navigate forward. I mean, this is the, the level of care that she had following in her uh, mother's footsteps. And then not only did she just have a passion for it, but she actually lived it. Uh, she, she did her whole career in preschool or children-related stuff. If you know uh, anybody who is in early childhood education, you know that they are only in it for the money, you know, Be, and because it's a super easy job. <laughs> now, my wife, Lynn, uh, she has her degree in elementary ed, but pretty much the majority of her education uh, career uh, when she was working in that field was with preschool level. When I was in seminary, uh, getting my uh, Master of Divinity, uh, for the first two years, uh, she worked in a preschool on the first floor of our apartment building that was connected to the seminary. She would come home every day absolutely exhausted. First order of business when she got up to her apartment, take a nap because she just spent eight hours 110% on, no chance to rest because there's going to be another diaper, there's going to be another crying kid, there's going to be another failed art project, whatever. It is exhausting work. And then a couple times a month, she would look at her paycheck and just weep <laughs> because we in our culture so undervalue and underpay probably the most important <laughs> educator in a child's development. The first five years, we know this, the first five years are the most important years in a kid's life. And yet we try to haggle our way to the cheapest care we can get. Megan chose to make her career that. And so I know from what was told about her uh, and her person and her attitude in her passion and her life, and even in her pursuit of the spiritual. She actually had a robust faith. And I'm very confident uh, that one day, whenever we're joined together again, 
however that looks, I'm confident she'll be there. And I'm confident that she had that hope swimming in her all the time. That the thing that was eternal that she was responding to is an eternal thing that will be welcomed home. I came across uh, this reading, and I'm uh, getting about ready to close here. I have a bunch of different things that I use for kind of devotional readings through the week from a wide range of authors and stuff. And one of them that I've been reading literally since I was probably 18 years old, so it's, you know, 12 years or so, um, is Oswald Chambers, who was a Scottish pastor uh, like 100 years ago. He died uh, early, and his uh, collected preaching and writings have been gathered, and so he has this devotion book. Some of you read it called My Utmost for His Highest. I've always liked it. This is the reading for July 28 that just fits what we're talking about today, about is this thing, you know, uh, about life after death, is that what we're, is that what we're in it for, or is there something more? And... Um, how do we define what this thing is about? What's our goal with this thing? It's just a few paragraphs. We are apt to imagine that if Jesus Christ constrains us and we obey him, he will lead us to great success. We must never put our dreams of success as God's purpose for us. His purpose may be exactly the opposite. We have an idea that God is leading us to a particular end, a desired goal. He is not. The question of getting to a particular end is a mere incident. What we call the process, God calls the end. What is my dream of God's purpose? His purpose is that I depend on him and on his power now. If I can stay in the middle of the turmoil, calm and unperplexed, that is the end of the purpose of God. God is not working towards a particular finish. His end is the process that I see him walking on the waves, no shore in sight, no success, no goal, just the absolute certainty that it is all right because I see him walking on the sea. It is the process, not the end, which is glorifying to God. God's training is for now, not presently. In other words, not the future. His purpose is for this minute, not for something in the future. We have nothing to do with the afterwards of obedience. We get wrong when we think of the afterwards. What men call training and preparation, God calls the end. God's end is to enable me to see that he can walk on the chaos of my life just now. If we have a further end in view, we do not pay sufficient attention to the immediate present. But if we realize that obedience is the end, then each moment as it comes is precious. It's about now. It's about the way of life. That is the bread of life that nourishes because we're walking with it all the time. On your tables, you have communion elements. And I'd like you to pick up a little cracker, which is gluten-free. And it's open to everybody, by the way. We don't have any uh, restrictions on that. It's an open table. Well, what do we got here? This is a symbol of, of uh, his body, Jesus' body. He said, uh, eat this and remember me. Remember my body, remember my life. And we know that this symbol, this body of Jesus was broken. And you know why it was broken? Because Jesus had a clear understanding of what needed to change in the world. And it drove him for somewhere between one and three years in his earthly ministry. And it led his hands and feet 
to speak truth to power, to call out the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities for the horrible injustices that were there and to speak hope to the people around him. And because he did that, he got beaten beyond recognition and executed by crucifixion. Many years later, they would see this as some sort of final sacrifice. But in the moment, Jesus just saw this as this is the process. Sometimes it is not going to end well, but man, God, I am going to do this because I can't not do it, even if it means I suffer and die. When we take this bread, we are saying that in a world of many, many ways to choose from, we're choosing to follow this Jesus because he was tied to the spirit of God that is eternal and brings life to us and all creation. If that's where you're at, or if you're just 10% there, but you want to give it a taste, you're welcome to take and eat this bread. This grape juice, which looks a lot like wine, wine is the blood of the grape, reminds us that there was blood coursing through Jesus' vein. That he had, um, he had the same kind of life force that we do. And he chose to use it uh, in very particular God-oriented ways. So when we see this, we recognize that we have a shared experience with Jesus because you and I also have blood coursing through our veins. And in light of what Jesus did, uh, we're asking the question, what do you want that life force to course toward? What are we really about? And much like the bread, are we willing to bet our lives on this life? And are we willing to even let some of this be poured out uh, for the benefit of many? And even if you only get that 10% today and you hope it'll be more, or if you're all the way up to 110%, I invite you now to take and drink. Now what I'd like to do with you is just take a moment of silence and I'll guide you through some questions uh, in our silence. But for right now, just invite you to close your eyes and take a deep breath. I want you to think about all that you've heard and experienced today. And in the silence, can you identify one or two things that have bubbled up that you can't not think about that are just right in your face? Can you identify those? And if you've identified that subject or that question, can you ask a follow-up question of yourself in silence? And that is, why do you think that popped up for you today? Why do you think that question matters to you? Why do you think that theme matters? What's the why behind the what? Finally, in light of the what and the why behind the what, what's the invitation that the Spirit of God may be inviting you to consider? It might be a change of thought, 
maybe a correction in the direction of your passion. It might be something you're doing with your life that needs to change. What is the invitation that you sense the Spirit of God inviting you into? God, we live in a culture and a time when consumerism is absolutely everything. It is what drives our capitalist system. It is in front of us all the time in advertisements, endorsements. We cannot escape it. It is its own world. It is its own God in our culture. And yet you call us to a different mindset. So I pray, God, that we will not embrace consumerism as we think about why we're pursuing you. That it's not because of all the goodies we get, even after death, but it's because you are you. You are the way. You are the truth. You are life. And we believe out of all the different options your way is the best, is the truest, is the liveliest. And so here today in this space, having taken communion, representing our decision to follow as best we can, as much as we can in your footsteps. We now pray the prayer that you taught us to pray, which consistently shapes our vision to one which follows after you. Let's pray it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.